When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We're your lifeguards on this deep dive. My name is Jordan Runtog. You just going to spring that one on me? Lifeguards to the deep dive? That was great. I stole that from you. I stole that from you, I think. Wow. All right, and I'm Alex Heigl. (laughs) And get ready for us to say, it belongs in a museum. (laughs) Far too many times through the course of this episode, because we are looking at antiques roadshow let's get public television hyped (laughs) yes the crown jewel in pbs's lineup turns 25 this year and ever since the joy of painting went off the air the antiques roadshow has been one of my favorite chill out sleepy time views and the eight million people who tune in weekly seem to agree it's currently the most watched of any ongoing pbs series Hmm. And this is interesting. It started as a British TV show in 1979, and I think it fulfills the same role as another beloved British TV show that's exploding today, The Great British Bake Off, where everything is gentle and beautiful and people are kind and learned and are going to politely teach you about something hyper-specific and you just watch and you take the ride. And I'd argue we strive for that on this show as well, but Antiques Roadshow does it so much better. Yeah, this is not a thing for me. I don't, I did not. Really? Nope, nope, did not watch it. I'm approaching this with the wide-eyed innocence of a flaxen-haired child. (laughs) I mean, I love it because not only is it peaceful, but there is this strange sense of excitement watching it too. And I, I think that, you know, it's a treasure hunt. And I think that the fact that they have everyday people parading through with their heirlooms in wagons and stuff is the secret to the Antiques Roadshow's success. If the show took place at a high-end auction house, it would be garbage. But instead, the show <laughs> rolls through various cities representing a cross-section of people and geography. And this makes it so much more relatable and also more like a treasure hunt. You know, the beauty of this show is that it sparks this tantalizing notion in all of us that untold riches are just gathering dust in your attic or your closet or your basement. But unlike shows like Pawn Stars or American Pickers, it's not centered around turning a profit or competitive commerce. 
So sure, you watch the money and you watch people's reactions, but that's not really what it's about. It's about knowledge and seeing what people hold dear. And I think that's really fascinating. The writer Stephen Lurie wrote about this in an article last year for The Atlantic called The Surprising Politics of Antiques Roadshow. And he said, Roadshow may not follow a traditional plot, but watch it enough and you'll see that it's telling a cumulative story about value. While the valuation of an object dangles over each conversation, the underlying ethic of every segment is knowledge, what the owner already knows about the object, and what the specialist can add or correct. The show might seem to be vulnerable to changing tastes, but its counterintuitive message, the sanctity of stories, family, and empathy, might allow it to flourish in turbulent times. I'm surprised to hear. I mean, no, I mean, look, I'm a pack rat. I am surrounded by the detritus of a life collecting things like a magpie. I have zero room to talk. I just, uh, you know, I start to tune out whenever you preface something with somebody writing at the Atlantic. Do you have anything in your collection that you would like to bring to the Antiques Roadshow? Oh, gosh. Uh, You know what? Actually, I do. I have two dolls from the Ivory Coast that are from a very specific region of Africa. Did I ever tell you this? This is my really no. bad, this is my really bad shit, insane like New York story. I used to live in Greenpoint. I would get off of the Greenpoint Ave stop and I got off the train one night and perched on one of the trash cans was this weird looking doll. You know, they're about a foot tall. They're very clearly handmade. There's like straw and like clearly hand stitched cloth and everything. And it's propped up on this little wooden stand and it just creeped the shit out of me. And so I naturally I took it home (laughs) and I had it my house for a long time. And then when my now wife and I moved to Bushwick, um, right around the corner from us was a vintage store. And I went in there one day and one of the items that they had was like this thing's twin. It was a similar doll, just in a different color, like different mask, different hair, different clothes, but very clearly of the exact same provenance. And uh, it was like 30 bucks or something. So I, I bought it and I took it home and I put it right next to the other one without telling her. And she didn't notice for months. And then all of a sudden she was like, wait, are there are there two of those now? <laughs> I, and I, like, and I, I was what like, do you mean? Yeah, exactly. I, I was like, oh my God, Wait, when did that happen? <laughs> um, yeah, but I looked them up and I don't know, there's some going on eBay for like 300 bucks. So maybe when the Antiques Roadshow rolls through my house, I'll take my creepy dolls. That is very interesting. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I hope they're not haunted. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in the opposite problem. I don't even know what of my assorted collection of ephemera I choose to bring into Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, I, you I, got I a too lot. much useless crap. Yeah. I also um, keep urine in jars, so I'd probably bring those. Well, you know what? You wouldn't be the first. <laughs> I know. I, this is the only thing I knew about this in advance. Yes, yes. Well, let's dive into it then. We will talk about the biggest paydays, the worst soul-crushing disappointments, plus scams and shenanigans from the surprisingly cutthroat world of antiquing. And there's also the time that one of the appraisers drank urine, another one pulled a severed dog's head out of a suitcase, and also how the show was used to get a murder suspect out of court. So without further ado, here is everything you never knew about the Antiques Roadshow. Now, on the episode of Jeopardy, we talked about how the odds of making it onto that game show are lower than becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Well, your odds for getting your moment of glory on the Antiques Roadshow are slightly higher, but not much. 
Antiques Roadshow visits six cities per year for tapings in June, July, and August. Free tickets are selected at random from a pool of applicants. And this is a hot ticket, so competition's strong. During the first four seasons of the U.S. version of the Antiques Roadshow, people literally camped out overnight hoping to get in. Like a dead concert or (laughs) SNL or something. But... Don't get your hopes up. You have a better shot at getting accepted into Stanford University than making it to air on the Antiques Roadshow. Just as an example, according to Collectors Weekly, more than 22,000 people applied for free tickets to attend the 2014 show in Santa Clara, California. Of those 22,000 people, fewer than 50 made it to air, or 0.2% of those who applied. And as of 2019, the average was about 30 items per episode from a pool of about 5,000 pieces. So, again, very, very low odds of making it on air. Yeah, and if you're one of those people who does, uh, you're only allowed to bring two items. And, um, you know, this is kind of a common theme for shows, but uh, don't bring a t-shirt with a brand on it or a bomb. Uh, appraisers will refuse to assess motor vehicles, stamps, stock certificates, paper currency, coins, tools, fossils, ammunition, explosives, or anything that falls under the umbrella category of hazardous. Tell me about the glass fire extinguisher, Jordan. Yeah, this was originally called a fire grenade, and there were these glass spheres that were thrown on fires in the 19th century in hopes that the chemical inside, carbon tetrachloride, would suppress the flames. But it turns out that carbon tetrachloride is poisonous and shouldn't be handled by anyone, like most things from the 19th century. It's also used in lava lamps. Is it really? Yeah. It adds weight to the otherwise buoyant wax. Uh, Weapons. Also no weapons. Unsurprisingly for a show that attracts, uh, you know, the demographic that rhymes with rumor, (laughs) uh, they uh, get a lot of old firearms and swords uh Tracks a lot of like pre-boom like greatest generation people do it yes yeah, um according to my arkansas pbs all knives and swords oh this is great they just have to be wrapped in a sheath uh and all firearms have to be unloaded and checked by law enforcement so thank you for taking the bare minimum as always <laughs> in safety the south um tremendous line you wrote for me here probably for yourself but i'll read yeah. it But much like Monty Python's Spanish Inquisition, the Antiques Roadshow's chief weapon is surprise. They want guests on the show to exhibit some kind of shock when they learn the value or at least the provenance of their item. Producers shoot upwards of 90 segments for the show and half of those wind up on the cutting room floor. And usually it's because the people are boring. So if you've studied up on the thing and already know the history or have a general idea of what it's worth, it's not good television. Good rule of thumb, no matter where you are, TV producers want their subjects dumb. Remember that. (laughs) But after all this talk about how hard it is to make it on air, it has to be said that not everyone wants to go on air especially those with high-end items. For security reasons, they may not want their name and faces out there for fear of theft or ransom, which kind of sounds like an incredible NCIS plot to me. Imagine some heavy whose job it is to just religiously watch Antiques Roadshow in order to pick his marks. Like, oh, that person has a credenza that's worth 25 grand. Like, let's 
Anyway, just as one example, one of the most valuable collections to ever appear on the Antiques Roadshow is a series of autographs from every presidential cabinet member spanning from George Washington to Franklin Roosevelt. And upon learning that the signatures could be worth upwards of a million dollars, the owner declined to be allowed the spot to be aired on television just for their own personal safety. And it can also be really uncomfortable for these sweet old people to learn that their old gravy boat or whatever is worth a small fortune while surrounded by tons of strangers. So for those cases when unsuspecting guests hit it big and learn that their heirlooms quite literally belong in a museum, the Antiques Roadshow team works with local law enforcement to arrange escorts to walk guests to their car and even tail them home. In case some, you know, maybe somebody learned that their, you know, Beanie Baby collection is monetarily worthless and wanted to come out ahead. So they wanted to steal an autograph collection off of some old person as they make their way to their car. Antiques Roadshow producers got you covered. They've got cops around to make sure that doesn't happen. But in their continuing efforts to be friend to collectors of all stripes, Antiques Roadshow also has a recurring segment where they spotlight cases of stolen art and artifacts including missing Norman Rockwell illustrations, historic film reels taken from the Norman Studios, and Native American objects taken from the Wisconsin Historical Society. I actually just read something, um, well, actually it's from 1988. must be the British one then. Yeah, the portrait of Mary Emma Jones. Did you read about this? I don't know that. No. Fans of the popular program Antiques Roadshow have been warned to take extra precautions when having their belongings valued on the show after it was revealed a prized painting was stolen from a family home after it was featured on the BBC show. Whoa, see? Yeah. Yeah. Portrait of Mary Emma Jones by Emma Sandys, which is an ugly painting, uh, <laughs> stolen in 1988 after its owner sent it to be valued. Uh, the theft was only discovered in July of 2018 when the painting sold at Christie's for 62,000 pounds. This woman said her father sent it in. Uh, it was valued by an appraiser at 20,000 pounds. And just a week after this episode aired, it was stolen from their house. Yeah. Actually, I mean, everything was stolen from their house. We came back on Saturday night and everything had gone, she told the Times. Uh, and this, it just kind of went under the radar until um, 2018 when it was sold at auction, sold to a private buyer. I don't see a resolution here. Yeah, because the art loss database only goes back to the 1990s, which is a thing that they consult every time one of these big things goes to auction. Christie said they searched the database before listing it, but because it only goes back to the 90s, it didn't show up. So anyway, there you go. That actually happened. That's horrifying. Um, there's another thing on here about a guy selling a stolen Banksy. Did you hear about this? No. Unidentified man. This is also BBC. Yeah, he just ripped a Banksy off a wall. <laughs> Did I ever uh, tell you my Banksy story? No, you got a Banksy story? I do. It was, this is weird. The morning that I was due to be a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I had to leave my apartment at some ungodly hour, like four in the morning, because you had to be there super early and the studios were way uptown. I live out in Brooklyn. So it was early, early, early in the morning. Nobody was on my street. Nobody. But I noticed this person with a kind of like a like a rolled up tarp that was kind of under their arm. And it was the only person around for blocks and blocks and blocks at this, you know, insane hour. And it was I noticed it because it was just so early. And then um, after I taped the show, I came home and I learned that Banksy, he was doing his New York residence at the time, had tagged a building just off of the street where I live. And I'm convinced <laughs> that I saw Banksy that day. 
Yeah, he probably did. I remember he was doing stuff in like right after I moved to New York. And my favorite thing about it was he tagged somewhere in Bed-Stuy that actually wasn't far from us. And the second all these people found out and started going there, these two guys from the um, the neighborhood just covered it up and started charging people to look at it. Oh, same. same. Actually, it was probably the same place. It was just off of Graham. It was by like an optometrist place. No, this was in, oh. I think, like East New York or somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah they, they have a whole they have a, a shed thing that goes up and down over it now. Yeah. God love him. Fostering <laughs> discord and local communities. Uh, speaking of lost paintings, sometimes they do uncover long-lost historical artifacts. One of the most valuable items ever was a lost painting by muralist Diego Rivera. He also painted other things, but probably best known for his uh, worker kind of industrial paintings. Um, also being married to Frida Kahlo. A uh, guy in Corpus Christi, Texas, came to the Antiques Roadshow in 2012 with this painting that his great-grandparents bought in Mexico in the 30s as a souvenir, and they hung it behind a door. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, that's just the most ignoble place to hang a painting. <laughs> they brought it to the show. They learned it was a lost work done by a teenaged Rivera at the turn of the century called The Bricklayer. An art appraiser named Colleen Fesco valued it at 8 hundred grand to a million and it was reapprised six years later in 2018 for upwards of 2.2 mil behind a, a door, door. <laughs> uh one thing that won't get you 2.2 is a picture of jesus um <laughs> Uh, you know, most of the stuff that passes through is not especially rare, not especially valuable. Um, was the line in The Simpsons, priceless like a mother's love or the good kind of priceless? <laughs> um, the, according to producers, the most common items brought in are early 20th century prints of Jesus. Uh, one appraiser, uh, Nicholas Nico Lowry, told the AV Club, here you have something that's legitimately 100 years old or more, but every single family had one. The show sees dozens of family Bibles in each city. The books were mass-produced and sold across the U.S. around the end of the 19th century. As I said, these items are not especially valuable, and this news sometimes results in some hurt feelings. Uh, one expert told Collectors Weekly, you can feel the hope our guests bring with them. Oh. It's palpable. The look in their eye, it's sweet. It's a very vulnerable moment for them. Another Simpsons reference. Remember when he's freeze-framing the Ralph episode? And he's like, and you can pinpoint the exact <laughs> moment his heart breaks here. <laughs> so even oh. if the item isn't worth the gas it took to make it to the show... The appraisers do their best to at least impart some knowledge that you can hopefully use to put food on your table. Um, you can always tell when they're disappointed because they always, they almost always say, oh, well, we'd never sell it anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the appraisers usually get between five and 30 minutes to do some research. How do they do this research on the fly? Is it like us? Probably like just, us. Just sitting here pulling shit up online, being like, huh? <laughs> what? Hey, hey, come here. <laughs> uh, the biggest letdown in Antiques Roadshow history involved a grocery store bottle of olive oil. This is tragic. <laughs> this is on the BBC version in 2009. A collector arrives with a glass bottle he'd paid over a thousand pounds for. They thankfully obscured his identity to spare him the national embarrassment, but he was described as a very smartly dressed and well-spoken man. It's like uh, in Hard Day's Night when they keep pointing at Paul's fictitious <laughs> grandfather and like, well, he's a very, very clean. clean man. 
Uh, he was very proud of this glass vessel and eagerly waited his appraisal. But a glass expert examined the item, got a second opinion, and subsequently told the gentleman, I'm afraid it's an empty olive <laughs> bottle. Tesco, which is a British supermarket chain, circa 2008. It's worth nothing at all. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, 2000. Me, the, yeah, yeah go ahead. That's the kicker. The fact that it wasn't even old. Like, this guy is supposedly a glass collector. And it, it, I mean, if it was just old, but like an old, you know, Mountain Dew bottle from the 40s or something, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah. It's from like a year earlier. Um, <laughs> Yes, as you mentioned, in a very English turn, the segment was not aired to save this man from embarrassment. And I'm really, I'm hard-pressed to cite a better example of the difference between the English and American television. I don't even know if we can say this, but I just want everyone to know that you titled the next heading, The Piss Bottle. What's it really worth? (laughs) Yes. Um... This story of the olive oil bottle really doesn't compare to the poor soul who brought in um, the aforementioned piss bottle. Um, I want you to take <laughs> I want you to take a trip with me for a moment back to the year of our Lord 2016. This is a story told in the Daily Express. So this is a also an episode of the British version of the Antiques Roadshow. A man in Cornwall, England, showed up to a taping of the British version of the show with a glass bottle that he'd found buried under his house, filled with a mysterious liquid. <laughs> That's never what you want to hear. That's never, yeah, never a good start. <laughs> um, the glass specialist, a guy by the name of Andy McConnell, estimated that the bottle dated to the 1800s but he was really jazzed about the fact that there was some liquid still inside this bottle, which apparently was much more rare. In a move that he would come to regret, he decided to extract some of this brown liquid with a syringe and give it the old taste test. I can't imagine why a smell test wouldn't have sufficed, but he went whole hog. Upon tasting it, the specialist, who it should be noted is a glass expert and not a wine expert, guessed that perhaps it contained port or red wine before ultimately giving up and saying that it could also be, quote, full of rusty old nails. And this last guess turned out to be closer to the truth. Three years later, after the bottle and its contents had been sent to a nearby university for analysis, the bottle and its mystery liquid were brought back on the Antiques Roadshow, and this expert was informed that he had sampled a cocktail of, get ready, <laughs> urine, brass pins, a human hair, and an ostracod. I'm not even seed told. shrimp. They're oh, okay. tiny crustaceans, and a Gross. tiny bit. Yeah, and a tiny bit of alcohol, which had been marinating for almost 200 years. And I'm <sighs> guessing this guy wanted to sample a lot of alcohol when he received this news. Uh, as to why this unholy blend was brought together in the first place, it's believed that it was a witch's brew designed to ward off witchcrafts and hexes on the house under which it was buried. Um, you know, after all that, I don't think I got the value on that one. <laughs> Priceless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like the American Express commercials. <laughs> You're ah. somewhat free. Brass <laughs> pins, 25 cents. A human hair, somewhat free. <laughs> Ostracod, 50 cents. Tiny bit of alcohol, 75 cents. Sampling a witch's brew that had been marinating under a house in Cornwall on national television, <laughs> priceless. Oh, God. Who is that guy? What's his name? What's the I, Andy, specialist? His name is uh, Andy McConnell. He's a glass expert on the Antiques Roadshow in Britain. I, I assume he's a recurring figure. 
while we're on the topic of ancient liquids that people are still hell-bent on consuming, I'd like to do a quick tangent on one of my favorite topics. I'm surprised I don't mention it more on the show. The Titanic. Uh, mm. One of my many obsessions. Wines recovered from shipwrecks are highly sought after, both for the novelty, the historical significance, and also the fact that the cool, low-light conditions of a shipwreck make it an ideal wine cellar. And literally the same week that the wreck of the Titanic was discovered in 1985, an article appeared in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Wine Lovers Are Thirsting for Titanic's Treasure. Which is mm. gross. Uh, bottles have been recovered from the wreck of the Titanic, which sat two and a half miles under the North Atlantic for the better part of a century. And most of the wine bottles had their corks pushed into the bottle due to the intense pressure. But champagne or anything sparkling was better preserved because of the pressure inside the bottle counteracts the exterior pressure. Plus, champagne tends to have thicker glass and differently shaped corks than regular wine. So champagne was reasonably well preserved. And some of the champagne that was said to have been recovered from the Titanic was the house brand, a 1907 Heideck Monopole, which is a favorite of the Russian Imperial Court. And it was Goût American, which is French for American taste, which kind of predictably meant that it was sweet. And compared to today's champagne, it was very sweet. Every bottle contained the equivalent of sugar that's in four cans of Coke. So what? it's, yeah, like champagne for Americans at the turn of the century would be basically undrinkable. It's like having nine Splendas. It's, that's yeah. disgusting. So I haven't been able to find any reports about how many drinkable bottles of champagne have been recovered. But in the early 2000s, an Australian company called Wine Flyers announced that it had sourced and sold six bottles of wine from the Titanic to, quote, a high-profile customer in Asia for a price that's thought to be several millions of dollars. And there's a rumor with this story, you know, as with most extremely wealthy people, they're pretty good at kind of suppressing details, but there's a rumor associated <laughs> with this story that's too good not to share. Apparently, this rich collector was placing an order with his wine merchant and added the request for bottles of wine from the Titanic as a joke. But <laughs> then one day he was notified that his order had been processed and was on its way. So it's like, oh, $3 million, please. Um, so that's incredible. Uh, the details on the story, like I said, are fuzzy as to the identity of the person and the champagne. But... To mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic in 2012, a luxury hotel in Hong Kong restaged the final first-class meal on the Titanic, consumed just hours before it sank. It was 10 courses, and reservations cost $10,000 a person. But it was likely worth it, at least for Titanic nerds like me, because a bottle of the vintage 1907 Heisdick and Monopole from the wreck was served, and it reportedly tasted great. Which is good because it very easily could have gone the other way. Uh, experts tasted wine from a 151-year-old Civil War shipwreck and an event in Charleston a few years back. And the wine reportedly tasted like, quote, crab water, gasoline, salt water, vinegar with hints of citrus and alcohol. Oh, that's disgusting. Crab water, huh? How do you even get past the gasoline to finish the citrus on the back end? Oh, it's very a... crab forward, very crab forward, <laughs> medium body, uh, a gasoline like mouthfeel, and on the back end, yeah, I'm getting some citrus notes. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. 
but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Neither the olive oil guy or the piss or bottle piss person bottle flipped guy. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably because, because they're British. If this would have been in the good old US of A, there probably would have been some at least angry phone calls, if not firearms pulled. Yeah, but, you know, despite all this talk of police escorts and home invasions, they also get some crazy people. <laughs> uh, speaking in a Reddit AMA from a few years ago, the show's executive producer, Marsha Bemko, said, We have nut jobs at every show. My favorite nut job of all time is the lady in Spokane who accused me of taking her ruby necklace and replacing it with a costume ruby necklace. She was convinced she was the queen of nut jobs. Uh, in that person's defense, the show has messed up on occasion, but usually they round up. Uh, <laughs> case, case in point, <laughs> grotesque face jug, which will be this episode's hashtag. <laughs> if not piss bottle. I don't know, folks. <laughs> Tweeted us using the hashtag crab juice. If you would prefer us to use the hashtag grotesque face jug or piss bottle. Uh, that's literally what they called the episode, grotesque yeah. face jug. 2016, banner year for Antiques Roadshow. Uh, a man by the name of Alvin Barr brings in a strange looking jug with a disfigured face that he'd picked up at an estate sale. It was hideous and covered with straw, dirt, and chicken poop. It was very dirty, he said in an interview with the Washington Post. I... <laughs> That's what happens when I don't read these ads. It was very dirty. I had to have it. It speaks to me. Uh, 
uh, I don't know how many times this is going to take me to get through. It was very dirty, he said in an interview with the Washington Post. I had to have it. It speaks to me. It was saying, I'm very unusual. I'm very different. He shelled out 300 bucks for it, certain that he'd overpaid, but he just had to have the grotesque, filthy, chicken shit smeared jugs. He takes it to Antiques Roadshow, and he's shocked when appraiser Stephen Fletcher tells him this jug is worth between 30 and 50K. Uh, he declares it a collectible piece of pottery from the late 19th century, and, you know, he prefaces that by saying he's been in the business for 20 years. Uh, Alvin Barr rendered speechless at this turn in his fortunes. Then a few months later, PBS gets a call from a woman named Betsy Sewell. Turns out the jug that Fletcher had thought to be a unique art piece from the mid-Atlantic coast of 19th century America was just a high school art project she made in the 70s in Oregon. Wrong century. Wrong part of America. Oh, boy. Wrong <laughs> value, most yeah, importantly. Well, yeah. A friend called Betsy to let her know that her weird pot she'd made decades earlier was on Antiques Roadshow. She did not pursue a career in ceramics and claimed to have no knowledge of the art style that Fletcher felt her pot was representative of. <laughs> I just love that. This appraiser, he waxed poetic for minutes. Just yeah. Yeah. When, we look at the, when we look at the base clay, it's redware, and the potters use an impressive array of techniques to come up with this extraordinary texture. This, in its own way, is really over the top. It's bizarre and wonderful. You even see a little bit of, like, Pablo Picasso going ah. on here. Uh, yeah, and uh, even after this came out, he... He didn't double down, but he said it's still worth between three and five thousand. An important piece of American folk art. Yeah. He released a statement admitting that as far as its age is concerned, I was fooled, as were some of my colleagues. Uh, but the pot's owner had a good sense of humor, quoted as saying, I hated it when it was worth thirty thousand to fifty thousand, because who wants thirty to fifty thousand dollars laying around their house? <laughs> now it's on my table and I love it. <laughs> But it's still, even at three to $5,000, it's still 10 times what he paid for it. Question, do yeah. they get bongs a lot? I, You know what? I don't know. I haven't heard that. Thinking that they were like some kind of old... Like an ocarina. Like Galileo era, like, piece of... Well, I just know all the stoners in my high school would make ocarinas. Because it was the simplest musical instrument to make. And then you could also put a screen in it and make a pipe out of it. Hmm. I mean, my high school just used, like, apples. Oh, yeah, we also used apples. Yeah. Uh, this was a fairly big scandal as far as PBS shows were concerned. The show's producers are pretty insistent that the appraisals are merely, quote, verbal approximations of value. But this was a bit beyond that pale. But, yeah, man, hashtag grotesque face jug. But you know what? It's somewhat understandable because these people aren't, aren't even paid, right? Yes, the Antiques Roadshow appraisers are not paid to be on the show. Uh, they're up upwards of 70 of appraisers on any given episode. Producers say that paying all of them would make the show a financial impossibility. So these highly trained experts do it purely for love of the game or more likely love of exposure. Again, eight, nine million weekly viewers. Plus you get free breakfast and lunch. That's, that's, that's not yeah. nothing. Yeah. So these experts and appraisers sometimes spends upwards of 10 grand out of pocket just to participate in a roadshow tour where they hit different cities. Uh, but passion certainly does enter into it. There are times when these experts get to handle artifacts that they'd read about their entire lives and never got to see up close. So that can be nice for them to see them. You know, you see it on some of the episodes too. They just totally geek out. We'll talk about this pocket watch later in the episode that this watch 
expert had been reading about for decades and finally got to see in person. And that's cute. But it can be grueling work because remember, two artifacts for... 2,500 ticket holders, that's 5,000 artifacts to be appraised by around 70 people a day. So it's understandable if mistakes do occur. Um, But the appraisers are actually sort of the MVPs of the show because unlike a lot of reality programming, there's no group of producers interviewing people in advance to try to get the juiciest or most heart-wrenching stories to tell on air. In fact, there are only three producers at any given tour stop circulating throughout the convention center, and they rely on the appraisers to basically act as like line producers to find the most interesting objects or compelling stories and bring it to their attention for potential filming. And like I said earlier, only something like 1% of items brought to the convention hall on any given day actually make it to air. So there's competition between all the appraisers because after all, they paid out of pocket to be there and they want to get a return on their investment by getting on TV and getting national exposure. So everyone's competing for airtime. So they pitch this roving trio of producers their objects, arguing that this is really what's worth sharing with millions on TV. So the appraisers will have a preliminary meeting with a guest to suss things out, see what their object is, see what the story is, see if they're intrigued. Then they'll call a colleague over and get a second opinion. And if they both agree, like, this is really cool, this is really something that, you know, maybe deserves to be on the show, they'll flag down a producer, plead their case. And according to the show's executive producer, Marsha Bemko, these appraisers are excellent salespeople. So in her words, they pitch it like a mad bunny. And they tend to go for story over big ticket value. And the show is passed on featuring paintings that are worth half a million dollars because the stories behind them aren't that interesting. So the items that stand the best chance of getting airtime are the ones that have interesting history, or the owner's story is captivating, or the appraiser is something really cool to add. That's really what they go for. It's story over price. So these appraisers are really on-the-spot segment producers, and in a sense, they're the ones identifying the stories, figuring out what to add to it, and then delivering their spiel on air. So it's impressive all that they have to do. The cardinal sin of Antiques Roadshow, the appraisers can't buy stuff. For all their hard work, that's the major caveat. They cannot, under any circumstances, purchase any of the items they appraise. This has been referred to by producers as the cardinal sin on the show. It's supposed to keep the show as clean and above board as possible and avoid any potential conflicts of interest. One of the appraisers said they can't even exchange business cards on the set. So if someone Hmm. gets a high-value appraisal on their item and says, hey, can you sell this for me? Can you give me your business card? They say, well, we can't do that now. Right outside the venue, literally outside the doors, is a table that has everybody's business card on it. Outside of, you know, the jurisdiction of the Antiques Roadshow producers. Look for me out there. My card's on that table. Call me in a week and we'll talk about it. But business cards cannot exchange hands while on the set for the Antiques Roadshow taping. That's how strict they are about wanting to make sure that there's no funny business because there has been funny business. How do they vet these people? Can I do it? Um, well, it's for free, right? In this next story, uh, you probably could. Hell yeah. All right. Well, uh, there's hope for all of us. Stay tuned for my mid-career pivot to unpaid Antiques Roadshow appraiser. Extremely corrupt unpaid Antiques Roadshow appraiser. Uh, you wouldn't be the first. Uh, yeah. Apparently during the filming of the very first American, the very first episode. That's what I saw. At least the first season, but I saw the very first episode. <laughs> Greatest country in the world. <laughs> Take a beautiful, sweet. <laughs> Didn't like, even last British a whole show. episode before we ruined it and dragged the Civil War into it. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. I love this story. 
has to do with a military artifacts dealer named Russ Pritchard III, that guy's racist, who used the show to try and bolster his reputation as an expert on Civil War artifacts. On one of the shows, he appraised a rare antique sword, which turns out was all a prearranged setup. The guy who brought in the sword was Pritchard's friend, and he didn't own the thing. It seems like he was just trying to do something to build his reputation, but it gets more bizarre than that. Having established himself as an expert, Pritchard then gave phony lowball appraisal on items. His business partner would then buy these items for this lower price and then turn around and resell them for a massive profit. For what they were actually worth. It's a great scheme. You use a well-established TV show to sell yourself as a memorabilia expert to lure owners of Civil War antiques, and then you set your own price with sellers across the country. But it all came crashing down in 1999 when Antiques Roadshow was contacted by descendants of Civil War Major Samuel J. Wilson, who had watched the show. Pritchard appraised Wilson's Civil War sword at nearly eight grand and bought it with the intent to display it in the National Civil War Museum in Pennsylvania. Instead, he and his business partner coordinated the sale of the sword for 20 grand. Pritchard and his business partner were indicted in March 2001 on charges of wire fraud, mail fraud, witness tampering, and giving false testimony, and additional indictments followed as other fraudulent activities came to light. They both pled guilty and were sentenced to prison in 2002. God, how did you... That's some serious, like... Chicanery? Yeah. (laughs) For something as pure as the Antiques Roadshow. I love how offended you are on Antiques Roadshow's behalf. I am. You didn't get this worked up over piss jug. Uh, All right. Show gets darker. (laughs) Yes. uh, I spoke earlier about Antiques Roadshow's tireless attempts to recover missing artifacts and artwork, but... In 2006, it may have gone some way in helping recover a missing person. Hopefully, kind of, sort of. Uh, (laughs) A famous Australian rugby player named Chris Dawson was arrested in 2018, 36 years after his wife Lynette went missing from their family home in 1982. Chris Dawson was having an affair with a student at the school where he worked at the time, so it seemed like a fairly, I hate to say it, but open and shut case killing a spouse to carry on with an affair. However, Chris Dawson claimed that his wife can't be dead, and therefore he can't be a murderer, because he saw his missing wife in the background of a 2006 episode of Antiques Roadshow that was filmed in Cornwall, England. Uh, However, Lynette's other family members think that this is garbage, and in 2018, Chris Dawson was charged with her murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. I think the case is still being tried. Well, all's well that ends well. (laughs) And this brings us to the moment you've probably all been waiting for. The big ticket items, the most expensive items ever valued on Antiques Roadshow. But to be clear, naming the most expensive item ever is difficult because the figure given is an appraisal as opposed to what the item was actually sold for. And these figures are also updated as the markets fluctuate. So it's tough. For example, the Diego Rivera painting we mentioned earlier, the expert who appraised it the first time on the show added an extra million dollars a few years later to reflect the high market prices of other works by the artist. So we'll be examining a selection of the most valuable items. Um, As a point of fact, the city where the most six-figure appraisals occurred was Palm Springs, California, followed by Baltimore. Balmer. (laughs) Good for Balmer, man. Uh, The thing that's most often recognized as having the highest valuation on Antiques Roadshow is a collection of Chinese cups 
made from the horns of rhinoceroses. Rhinoceroci? Rhinoceri? Rhinoceri. Rhinoceri. A man from Tulsa brought them to the show in 2011. He said he began his collection in the early 70s when he made a trip to Bath, England. And he popped into an antique store and apparently blew the majority of his vacation budget on one of these cups, which were made in China for ceremonial purposes. I had to have it. It was very dirty. It speaks to me. (laughs) It was very dirty. He had to have it. Uh, This first one cost him around $500. And over the years, he'd spend about five grand until he had a full set of five cups. And I've seen a span on the dates that they were supposedly made. Some, I think, are from the 17th century. Whereas I saw that some were from 1,000 years B.C., Yeah, so I'm a little confused about how old these cups are, but apparently this guy just liked them. And despite their slightly problematic overtones of using uh, endangered species tusks as a material, as a building material, uh, he just really liked them. But the Antiques Roadshow's Asian art expert, Lark E. Mason, valued the collection between $1 million and $1.5 million the highest valuation on any item in the show's history at the time. And apparently the whole endangered species thing worked in his favor because part of the reason it's so valuable is because of its scarcity. And also the Chinese art market was booming at the time because, quote, there are so many people in China trying to buy back things that mean something to them. So all in all, the reason why this is valued so high is slightly sinister. But the owner apparently got a piece of that action because he sold two of his five cups at auction in 2015 for 329000 And I don't know. I know that they didn't come as a set. I know he obtained them all individually, but it still kills me to break up the collection. <laughs> That's the completest in me. But I'm sure that for, you know, three hundred thirty grand, I would get over it. <laughs> So those cups set the record for the highest valuation on the American version of the Antiques Roadshow. But how about the British? Yeah, well, that record actually belongs to a Football Association Cup uh, broken in again, 2016. God, what are we uncovering here? Weirdly, the British got sports memorabilia and the Americans got animal parts, which does seem to be counterintuitive. Would have thought the other way around, yeah. Yeah, uh, so the... Football Association Cup trophy was presented to winning teams from 1911 until 1992 when it was replaced by a new trophy, still in the same mold. (laughs) Jordan, you said this doesn't interest me because it's too famous. Yeah, it seems like the kind of thing that should, in fact, be in a museum. So I don't know. It's not very interesting. But it was valued conservatively at a million pounds, which is roughly... $1.4 million, making it the highest value ever given on the British version of the Antiques Roadshow. And speaking of uh, sports... And stuff that doesn't really do it for me. Uh, Yeah, sports stuff, not really my thing, but I'm a Boston boy born and raised, so this was intriguing to me. In 2014, a woman in New York brought a collection of memorabilia from the Boston Red Stockings, Hmm. who are, I believe, the earliest known professional baseball team. And despite its name, they actually evolved into becoming the Atlanta Braves, not the Red Sox, Hmm. which is strange to me. Uh, The collection included a complete set of baseball cards from the 1871 to 1872 season, which had been given to the woman's great-great-grandmother as a gift for letting the team stay with her. Hmm. Big house or a small team, you be (laughs) the judge. And this archive also includes photographs, written notes, and signatures of founding Hall of Famers like Harry Wright, 
George Wright and Albert Spaulding. I'm sure that means something to somebody, <laughs> but sure as hell not to me. Uh, Antiques Roadshow sports memorabilia expert Layla Dunbar appraised the card archive at $1 million. Speaking of old things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watches tend to be a little boring to me too, but I'll go through this one quickly because the price is just nuts. The Patek Philippe is a Swiss watchmaking company that can set you back tens of thousands of dollars in this day and Tens age. of thousands, buddy. Hundreds of thousands? Uh, there's one on eBay right now for $439,000. Okay, so I guess at the end of the day, I really shouldn't have been surprised by this valuation. <laughs> but in 2004, a Minnesota man brought a custom-made watch that had been made for his grandfather back in 1914 and handed down through the generations. It was kept in near-perfect condition and had cool, for the period, features like a calendar that accounted for leap years and a moon phase indicator. This is 1914. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All in all, this led appraiser Paul Hardquist to more or less wet his pants on air in a way that's really rare for Antiques Roadshow staff to do, he declared it the finest watch he had ever seen and estimated the auction value for a quarter million dollars, a total that was increased in 2016 again to 1.5 million and most recently to 2 to 3 million. Here's a question. Yeah. At what point do you start selling your priceless family artifacts? Uh, when you need a, a, a kidney or... Yeah. What's your price on history? Okay, so this is not assuming that I'm in dire need of money for health reasons or other or something serious. This is just if things are going good. All things being equal. Just you All you're sitting on, you find out you're sitting on a three million dollar watch, but twist made for your grandfather. Great grandfather. Whatever. Let's say not even great. Let's say regular grandfather. Say great, yeah, someone you had a personal connection with. Yeah. Oh man. Well, if it was a watch. You say that with such I, contempt. Why do you hate watches so much? I just, uh, I don't know. But we'll, we'll get into the Wizard of Oz memorabilia in a minute. Mm. That's the stuff I really go to bat for. Uh, I have a Beatles record that's a rare misprint that in 2000 was valued at, I think, like 14 grand. Holy sh! And I've held. Well, I, because I do collect stuff yeah. and I, I rationalize it to myself by basically saying, this is money in the bank because yeah. the value of this stuff will go up, which is a bad way of rationalizing my poor impulse control for buying. Don't skirt the question. At what point do you sell granddad's watch? Well, here's the, my answer. I would hold on to as long as possible because mm. the value is just going to go up. Okay. So I would save it until I needed something or at very least wanted something badly enough. Yeah. But if it was a life-changing amount of money, if it was in the millions, the temptation would, yeah. I, I'd say if it was in the millions, immediate. If it was anything under millions, probably hold on to it until I needed it because it was just going to keep going. It's like a savings bond. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I wouldn't hesitate. <laughs> I'd, I'd do it. Uh, you got a lot of guitar pedals do, you want. Yeah, do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. Granddad never heard the Strymon Timeline multidimensional <laughs> delay pedal. <laughs> Tell you that. Well, I don't even know how the hell do you pronounce this? Navajo Oot? First phase oot, yeah. blanket? None of those words connect, Jordan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to make that right for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, here's a good one to find on YouTube, though. A sweet gentleman of a certain age brought a blanket to the roadshow uh, when it came through Tucson in 2001. It is a Navajo chief's blanket from the 1840s, believed to have once been owned by legendary trapper and frontiersman Kit Carson, who gave the blanket to this gentleman's grandmother's family. The weaving is so fine on this that it could repel water. 
That was expensive even at the time they were made. Value in 1840s dollars was 100 to $150, which was roughly 3500 in today's dollars, and it is worth even more now. Uh, it turns out this blanket is from the first phase of the Ut period, the very earliest period in Navajo weaving. Um, once again, none of those words mean anything to me, but this blanket is extremely rare. Fewer than 100 are known to exist, and uh, an important piece of history. And the appraiser Donald Ellis called it a national treasure, valued it for between three hundred and fifty to $500,000, and he made the little old man cry. Uh, <laughs> and those changed tears of joy later in 2012 when it sold at auction for $1.8 mil. Good Lord. Was Kit Carson racist? I assume so. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. All right. Lightning round. Weird shit on Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, most Other of these... than piss jug. Right. <laughs> that was just an aperitif for what was to come. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ew! <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, most of these big ticket items are actually sort of boring because a lot of them are, are kind of the same type of stuff, paintings and watches. So I wanted to give a quick lightning round of some of the more interesting, read weird items that come through Antiques Roadshow. And one of my favorites went down in the UK in 2015 when a guest brought a slice of cake from Queen Elizabeth II's 1947 wedding to Prince Philip. And this sounds weird, but it actually wasn't unusual to give away slices of cake as souvenirs from very high-profile weddings. And you can still actually find bits of a slice from Charles and Diana's wedding on eBay, and I almost purchased one. 
Um, it's also part of the mini museum website. And they should send me a free one for this plug. <laughs> You're getting I, the run tog boost. I probably should have mentioned this top of the episode. The stuff that I collect ranges from a piece of John Lennon's carpet. I have one of Ernest Hemingway's fishing lures. I have a piece of deck wood from the Titanic. I have a piece of the Berlin Wall, a piece of a lot of pieces because I can't afford the full things. A piece of one of Jimi Hendrix's scarves. Uh, all sorts of useless crap. Yeah, so a piece of cake from the Queen's wedding was very much up my alley. And this piece of cake that was brought on the Antiques Roadshow uh, was still in its original packaging, had original icing decorations, and, quote, mummified raisins, which is terrifying. Uh, the owner of this cake, Slice, said that her grandfather had been part of the Guard of Honor during the wedding, which is hmm. how he obtained the piece, and her grandmother was so proud of it that she refused to eat it, preferring to preserve it to show off to visiting friends and visitors. I mean, that's a hell of a bragging right. Just one on eBay right now for 1400 bucks. in case anyone wants to jump on that, buy it for the show. Full slice or piece? Full slice. Oh, wow. Oh, Charles and Diana? Yeah, it says so. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine that's a very easy thing to fake, too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Easy and dust. disgusting. You can't dust for vomit. You can't <laughs> dust a cake. But yeah, this woman refused to eat the cake, instead preferring to preserve it and show it off to guests who came around their house. And this disgusting yet historic slice of cake was valued at a thousand pounds or roughly $1,400. And again, this is really where my bias starts to show through. It's like, you know, <laughs> what? A precision timepiece that actually does something practical like tell time made with skill and hundreds of man hours, maybe thousands of work hours. How could anyone pay that kind of money? But as soon as you start bringing up a rotting piece of historic cake, yes, that I'm fine with. So that's interesting. Uh, this next artifact concerns one of the most famous pranks in history, the Cottingley Fairies. Uh, which was later immortalized in the 1997 kids' movie Fairy Tale: A True Story. Uh, are you familiar with this? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is great. In 1917, cousins Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths took several photographs to supposedly prove that fairies existed at the bottom of their garden in the woods of Yorkshire. And the really funny part is. I think it all started as them staying out to play too long and were late for dinner or something, and their parents were mad. And then they said, well, where were you? So, oh, we were, we were hanging out with the fairies at the bottom of the garden. And they said, well, okay, now we're doubly mad at you for lying. No, 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 we can, we'll take pictures of it. We can prove it. So they took these photos, and it kind of very rapidly... <laughs> Things escalated quickly, let me put it that way. It became this national thing in England, this huge story that was widely believed to be a hoax at the time until it got support from Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And, you know, it's interesting. For somebody who created a character who was so ruthlessly practical and logical and pragmatic, Conan Doyle was very interested in spiritualism and the paranormal and things that you couldn't prove with certainty, unlike his character, Sherlock Holmes. So maybe that's what led him to him. I mean, maybe he was bored with, you know, the physical realm and uh, wanted to look for things that couldn't be explained with logic. So he took up this girl's cause and became very personally invested in trying to prove that these girls were telling the truth and really had taken pictures of fairies. Oh, Rube. I know. And he, he did this by giving them a very expensive camera to try to you know, persuade them to take even more fairy photos, which they did. 
And these photographs that they took remained shrouded in mystery until 1983, when the cousins admitted that they faked it by copying illustrations of dancing girls from a popular children's book and then just adding wings to the illustrations. And they drew them on the cardboard and supported them with hat pins and kind of pinned them (sighs) to, like, leaves and stuff. Laughably, um, laughably simple. Yeah, yeah, it really kind of is. But, I mean, it was almost so deceptively simple that it kind of worked because they got the angles just right, and then when they were shown the photograph experts, they were said, well, there's nothing, nothing was done to the negative. There's nothing fake on the way the photo was taken so we can't say this is a faked photo it's depicting something real so that was kind of enough to add like a little bit of lingering like maybe it is real but they admitted that they were just illustrations drawn on the cardboard um but uh they also said and this is interesting and maybe this was just a funny little way to add a little air of mystery they said that they really had seen fairies but just weren't able to document them on camera so that was why they faked these photos so make of that what you will. What do we do to the bit? We we commit to the bit. Um, and I guess they claim that they were too embarrassed to admit to the deception after they had fooled Sir Arthur Conan Doyle because they had fooled this brilliant man. So they were embarrassed into keeping quiet for, you know, 1917 until 1983, a very long time. Anyway. The camera that was used to take these photos, as well as the original photos themselves, were taken onto Antiques Roadshow and were valued between twenty-five thousand and thirty thousand pounds, so almost fifty thousand dollars. Uh yeah, and in much less hoaxy territory. Yeah. yeah. During a 2012 trip through Seattle, a guest brought in a collection of clothes that belonged to Jimi Hendrix. This included a kimono worn for one of the last shows he played with the Jimi Hendrix experience at the Newport 1969 festival. Also, the red velvet pants he wore at Woodstock for the uh, Star Spangled Banner performance. That was really what what kicked into another class of memorabilia, those pants. I mean, anything worn. I mean, it's one of the most iconic performances of any rock musician ever. So this this whole grab bag worth uh, $1,075,000. While we're in the Hendrix category, guy in 2016 brought in a pick, which Hendrix dropped mid-set in August of 1970, right before he died. Uh, This guy was 12 at the time sitting in the orchestra pit and asked Jimmy if he could have it in between songs, and Hendrix apparently handed it to him. He also got a broken guitar string from a roadie, which he and his friends split with a pocket knife so they could share it, which I find unaccountably adorable. That is some 12-year-old stand-by-me shit, man. We should, we gotta cut this Hendrix guitar string so we can share it. And a drumstick from Mitch Mitchell, who was also there. Was also present at the time. <laughs> Didn't Mitch Mitchell get shot down for Wings? I know one of the experienced guys auditioned for Wings and uh, didn't make it. I don't know. I like that. I hope so. <laughs> you hope that he didn't get the job? Mitch Mitchell's... One of his, my favorite performance of his uh, non-Hendrix category is he played with Georgie Fame of Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. Did an incredible version of Last Night by the Marquettes. And... His drum breaks on it. Rip. Oh, he's a tremendous drummer. It's from like, I think it's from 65. Oh, uh, in 1974, Mitch Mitchell auditioned for Wings, but lost the part to Jeff Britton in a coin toss. Oh, wow. Um, Jeff Britton did not last long in Wings. I don't think he was there for a year. Wow, this is really crazy. All right, Mitch Mitchell sidebar. Hold on for just a 
damn second, folks. Mitchell auditioned for the Jimi Hendrix experience in October of 1966 and was chosen over uh, a guy named Ainsley Dunbar yeah. in a coin toss. No. Yes. Does he insist on joining bands Based only on after winning a coin toss? Yes. And then he auditioned for Wings and lost in another coin toss. The coin toss giveth and the coin toss taketh away. <laughs> uh, all that from that show was uh was it just the drumstick that was valued for three to five K? All the stuff. Wow. That whole lot? Three to five K? Damn. You could see the guy was disappointed. Moral of the story is collect your hero's pants because <laughs> they're they're our actual music music equipment will net you nothing. Um <laughs> less musically, during a stop on the UK version of the show, a man brought in Winston Churchill's top hat and cigar that he found in a box at the dump where he works uh quote i've worked there for about 15 years and i get to pull out whatever i like <laughs> i get whatever i want from the dump oh uh, why am i on this guy he found winston churchill's top hat he had three sheds full of stuff that he took home this one had daily letters from a woman who worked with winston written to her son outlining winston's daily routine which is that's treason yeah, it was during the war. It seemed a little, little yeah. Uh, there was an autographed letter that Churchill wrote to this woman's son, and all this was valued at 10,000 pounds, which, again, seems low. Although, mm. how many cigars and top hats did that guy have? Probably a lot of them floating around, is my bet. Uh, while yeah. we're talking pop art, what do we got next? Yes, a man met Andy Warhol in the club scene in the 80s and became friends to the point where he even brought his mom to Andy's factory, which is weird but adorable. And, yeah, don't do that. And one night, presumably out at a club, he asked if Andy would sign some Campbell's soup cans. And Andy said, sure, bring them on by my studio tomorrow. And sure enough, he did. And he signed a whole assortment, which the guy put into a plexiglass case. He also bought a Campbell's soup can print from Andy which he then autographed for $125. And he also had him sign a few interview magazines, interview being the magazine that Warhol, uh, I don't know if he was the editor of or created or what, but he ran. The collection of six soup cans were valued at $12,000. The magazines were valued at $1,500 a piece. And the print that this guy had bought for $125, and he said that he even had Warhol wait a few days to cash it because... Payday wasn't for a few more days, was valued at 20 grand. That is a good payday. Good payday. Uh, I put this one in here especially for you. <laughs> a man in Sacramento showed up with an early prototype of the Ark of the Covenant that had been made for Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. This guy's father had worked for Industrial Light and Magic, which is, you know, one of the most storied special effects houses ever. And yeah, this young man had it in his San Francisco apartment growing up where they kept blankets in it. <laughs> it was just like in the living room. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's just a prototype. It's like all thrown together. It's like hot glue and spray paint. And the trim work was made from old picture frames. And the statues on it are actually old trophy tops. So it, it looks like this really janky thing. But... Its value for cinema historians is, well, I shouldn't say priceless. There is a price, but very high. Uh, <laughs> estimated value between 80 grand and 120 grand. Not bad for basically an Ottoman to keep <laughs> blankets in. 
And I love this one as a music fan. Uh, a guy who worked at the Motown Museum in Detroit was tasked with going through a Motown artist's personal effects after they died. And the museum passed on a lot of the stuff. So he went back a few days later to buy some of it for himself at an estate sale that the family was holding. And when he got home, he was going through his new purchases, and some of them were just albums that he bought for like 50 cents. And out of one of these albums tumbled a 1964 passport belonging to Marvin Gaye. Mm. Presumably the musician who died had worked with Marvin, although it's unclear why he had Marvin's old passport in the first place, let alone kept it in an album sleeve. <laughs> but passports are a big deal in the collecting world because of the autograph component. You have to sign your own passport so it can't be faked. It's one of the most you know easily authenticated autographs you can ever have. And also passports are rare because you only have a handful of them throughout your life. So this guy paid 50 cents for this album. He was told to insure Marvin Gaye's passport for 20 grand. Wow. Which one of these has had the highest ROI? Uh, that might be it. It's got to be up there. Yeah. Uh, why the hell did you make me read this? Uh, Winky Spears. <laughs> Folks, that do anything for you? Winky Spears. Yeah, is this thing on? Uh, a man brought two massive oar-sized spears, or pikes for those of you in the military uh, <laughs> industrial complex, used during the production of The Wizard of Oz by the Winky Guards... Or the uh, Wicked Witch of the West's Monkey Guards. I did not know that's what they were called. They were called Winky. Yeah, I was in the Wizard of Oz play in high school, and they were the Winky Guards, yeah. Were you a Winky? No, I was the, uh, that's a horse of a different color, Emerald City Guard. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> what did he pay for, Michael? <laughs> uh, 590 bucks in 1984, valued at upwards of 30 grand today. That's a spicy Winky Spear. <laughs> Uh, all right, next up, Hiroshima Bowls. Um, Is that really what's next? Yeah, buddy. Wow, I, I was asleep at the wheel when it came to laying this episode out. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, several people, not just one, several people have brought in porcelain recovered from Hiroshima after the atomic bomb was detonated. A woman in Torquay, England, presented three bowls that were fused together. The host initially assumed it was the result of a kiln explosion before he got the full story. Another man brought cups flecked with sand that had turned to glass. Um, you know, you can't really put a retail price on something like that. As one said, how do you put a value on these? They simply record an extraordinary moment in time. Um, all right. Moving right along. And because we can't end on such a depressing note, here's something a little different. Heigl? Uh, the host of the of the BBC version was told to open a suitcase someone had brought on camera, and she wasn't told what it contained because they wanted her response to be genuine. Inside was the severed head of a dog. Taxidermied, but still. <laughs> um, the dog had chased down a criminal, the last man to be hanged in Leicester, and in a kind of memorial, the good boy's head was preserved and kept in a suitcase. What's in the box? Did they say what's in the box? <laughs> oh, missed opportunity. Good God. Wow. Well, wrapping up this wildly digressive and occasionally incredibly depressing episode that brought us such things as grotesque face jug and 
piss jug and severed heroic dog head. Jordan, I think you had a, a, you're quoting The Atlantic again to take us out, right? Yeah, I'd like to close with this line from The Atlantic piece by Stephen Lurie that I mentioned earlier. He summed up the deceptively simple and oddly beautiful premise of the Antiques Roadshow like this. It's not about getting rich, playing the market, amassing wealth, or even acquiring nice things. In a show whose segments are punctuated by dollar amounts, there's actually a quiet, persistent suggestion to direct our aspirations somewhere else. History, family, sentiment, even love. And piss. <laughs> well, folks, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll see you next time. Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss in the land of saints and sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.